You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Please be seated, friends. We're excited to hear God's Word read this morning uh, by Will Hayes. So let's listen to God's Word, Galatians 5 and James 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, like Brooke, I'm so happy to see so many of you in the room after (laughs) several weeks of uh, snow and ice and grateful for all of you online. If you've been with us at all over the last few weeks, you'll know that we are in a new sermon series that we're calling The Church in a Time of Crisis. How do we cultivate a fruitful community. We're looking at the fruit of the spirit, the famous fruit of the spirit from Galatians chapter five. Paul says that those of us who are now belong to Jesus have two distinct operating systems at work within us. We have the old operating system of the flesh that operates according to our sinful, selfish desires. And yet in Christ, we have the new operating system of the spirit that now enables us to operate according to the new creation that we are in Christ. And what we've said about the series is that this last year um, has revealed in many ways that I think there's a whole lot more flesh in us than we have ever cared to admit. I certainly have seen that in myself. Uh, We've seen uh, just like that pressure exposes what is beneath the surface of the ground. So accumulated stress of the past year has really exposed what is beneath the surface of our lives. So in in each of us personally, we've seen things like um, anxiety and anger and envy and hatred and despair and selfishness, dissension, rage. That was just me yesterday. You know, there's a lot, it's just emerged. Um, We've seen broadly in the American church, we've seen that In many ways, the American church has been more shaped by things like consumerism and militarism and nationalism and a thirst for power than it has been by the spirit of God shaping us to be more like the person of Jesus. And so what we're asking for in this season of Lent is for God to make us new, for him to revive us and renew us and to bear the fruit of the spirit in us which is the character of Jesus. Ultimately, this is the greatest thing that we can offer to the world, friends, is a vision of Jesus. That's what we have to give to the world in crisis. Through bearing the fruit of the spirit, we make Jesus 
visible. We make the gospel credible. Why would anyone ever want to listen to us, self-proclaimed followers of Jesus, unless we actually look like him? The fruit of the spirit makes the gospel credible. So we want our video to match our audio. Get my drift? We want, we want our lives to match our words. We want our actions to match our profession. And so we are asking God to produce this fruit in us. We've looked at love, joy, peace. Today we come to patience, patience in a time of restlessness. Now, as I was studying this virtue this week, I laughed many times because I found myself, you know, stuck in a global pandemic with school closed nearly every day, ice and snow, trapped in a home with four kids. And uh, just, yeah, here I am trying to learn about patience. It was a, a laboratory for me, as I'm sure for you. Um, and I just want you to know that I come to you today by no means as an expert in patience. I come as, if, if, if really, as a, as a chief student um, who desperately needs to learn this. Um, I don't think I need to persuade any of us that patience is not a particular strength for Americans in general. Um, even before the pandemic, American society was incredibly low on the patient scale. We tend to value what is the most immediate, productive, efficient, not necessarily what's most enduring. Uh, especially with the emergence of digital technology, the impatience of our habits has intensified. Now the average American attention span is eight seconds, which is actually shorter than a goldfish's attention span. Um, our capacity to wait has dramatically diminished. This shapes our reactivity, as we have seen um, throughout the pandemic. We are impulsive in the way that we react to tweets or social media. We send angry email responses without really thinking. We are so eager to get our word in, to get my point across, to speak my mind, no matter what the consequences might be. Uh, we, we are developing a, a sort of a cancel culture in which we thrust people out of our circle if they offend or cross us in any way. In everyday life, we see outbursts of anger in the grocery store or at the traffic light. We tend to show a measure of patience with the people that are closest to us, but not so with the person behind the counter, the server who gets our order wrong, the faceless person in the car in front of us. And not only that, we have very little patience to endure difficult circumstances. Uh, so we're so used to modern efficiencies. We're so used to immediate gratification that if things do not go perfectly smoothly or if we are delayed in any way, we feel justified in getting angry, speaking our mind, telling someone what we think. Our capacity to put up with hardship is very low. Situations in which previous generations were able to move through with a lot of resilience and endurance and courage, we tend to get overwhelmed by and collapse under which in many cases leads to depression and despondency and anxiety, which we see at all time highs. So because of all of these factors, friends, we're unable to affect real constructive change in the world. So we don't have resilience to push through challenging circumstances, nor are we able to partner with those who disagree with us because of our impatience with them. And so as a result, we're unable to affect real change in the world. And we see all this political infighting, all this inability in our country to make any progress. Is it any wonder? Because a society without patience 
is a society that ends up fighting and segregating and separating and isolating and ends up depressed and despondent, all of which leads to broken communication, broken relationships, broken communities, broken systems, broken culture. I, I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in order to sustain a healthy family, community, democracy, society, it's dependent on the virtue of patience. So we need this. We really need this. So let's just spend a few moments this morning asking what it is, what is patience, and how we can cultivate it. So first of all, what is it? It seems silly to ask, what is patience? Don't we know? Well, this is one of those times that actually exploring the original language is pretty beneficial and isn't just there to sort of make the preacher sound pompous. Um, you may have already noted that different Bible translations use different words in the translation for patience in Galatians 5.22. So the NIV that was read this morning says forbearance. Um, the ESV says patience. The old King James says long suffering. What a great word. That's because there is a range of meanings for the word that Paul uses here in Greek for patience. And no one single English word can cover all of the meanings. So the word that Paul uses for patience here is the word macrothemia. Great word, macrothemia. If you know Latin, you can probably see the breakdown. The macro means large, themia means passion. Macrothemia, large passion, or more accurately, long angered. It does not suggest being angry for a long time, but rather taking a long time to get angry. It's the opposite of quick-tempered. It is delaying or deferring passionate, angry, emotional response. Now, there's two ways that biblical authors use this word, two distinct meanings. The first way relates to patience with other people. The second with patience with circumstances. Let's look at each. The first relates to patience with other people. And that is often translated with the English word forbearance, forbearance. So Paul says in Colossians 3.23, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and macrothumia, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you have against each other. In his famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lists this as the first characteristic of agape love. Love is macrothumia. So what it's saying is when it comes to other people and their weaknesses, their selfishness, their unkindness, or their annoyingness, whatever it might be, God is calling us to macrothemia, which means to delay our passionate emotional response and reactivity to their weakness. Overwhelmingly in scripture, God is the model of macrothemia. One of the most common descriptions of God is that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. God is long-tempered, which means he delays his anger. He delays judgment to open up opportunity for grace. The great theologian Karl Barth said that God's patience is, quote, the purposeful concession of space and time. I love that, the purposeful concession of space and time. What that means is, is that instead of reacting immediately in judgment or immediately with the consequences of our actions, God creates space and time, delaying his judgment to give opportunity for what? Repentance and change. So think of Adam and Eve. You know, God told them if they eat the fruit, they'll die. But instead of immediately giving them the consequences of their action, he delays their death until many, many years later, until their old age, to give 
time and space, both for their own repentance and to bring a seed, a, a, a person from the womb of Eve, eventually through whom the, the Savior would come. So he delays his judgment to open up space for change. In the prophets, God is grieved at the idolatry and rebellion of his people, but to the prophet's amazement, he delays his wrath in order to give his people time and space to return, repent. So Joel 2 says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So this means that though all of us I'm sorry, also in the New Testament, the New Testament, Peter even applies this idea of forbearance of God to God delaying the final judgment. So in 2 Peter 3, he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient. He's macrothemia with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this means that though every single one of us, friends, are fully deserving of God's anger and judgment and death and eternal separation, God delays judgment. He defers his anger to create the possibility of a new outcome through repentance and redemption, ultimately leading to eternal life. So so this means that though all of us are deserving of that, God has made us recipients of the amazing forbearance of God His patient love waits, defers, creates space that we might receive forgiveness, redemption, and life. So now God says, do macrothemia for others. Delay your own emotional reactivity to create space for grace. Delay your passionate, frustrated anger in order to create grace, opportunities for grace for others to change. So what does that really look like? Well, it's really important to note that this does not mean accepting or enabling the sinful or harmful behavior of others. I want to be clear on that. You know, that's not patience. That's apathy. That's indifference. Indifference is the opposite of patience because indifference just wants to avoid pain, avoid conflict, avoid difficult conversations to stay in a place of comfort. Being patient with others does not mean accepting everything. It means delaying your strong emotional reaction and judgment in order to engage the person in love to create time and space for the other person to grow. So here's some examples. So in parenting, big laboratory for me right now, in parenting, being forbearing means that when your kid is acting the fool, that uh, doing that thing again and again, that instead of just Forbearance means instead of lashing out, it means delaying anger, delaying judgment in order to engage the child in love about their behavior to create space and time for the child to understand the consequences of their actions and to actually grow. That's forbearance. In marriage, forbearance means not just walking away or shutting down or withdrawing or lashing out, but delaying the immediate satisfaction of our aroused emotion you hear what I said? Delaying the immediate satisfaction of our aroused emotion and instead lovingly engaging with the partner to seek their good. Sometimes that means just accepting annoying habits. Okay, so he's just always gonna keep the cabinet door open. I don't know why. I don't know why he doesn't close. You might just have to accept it. It's not harming anyone really, okay? So it might mean accepting uh, the annoying habit. Sometimes it means loving confrontation 
Uh, and sometimes, especially in situations of abuse, it might mean removing yourself, separating from the person, requiring, asking for an action plan, but all in the spirit of love that you are giving space and time for God to work and for the person to have the opportunity for redemption and change, right? In the workplace or the justice system, forbearance could be refraining from coming to an immediate decision based on someone in the worst sum total of their failures, but instead giving space and time for rehabilitation, for time for growth and change. So, so we could say this, that forbearance is, to venture a definition, it is the ability to put up with weakness of others without getting quickly irritated or angry, delaying judgment to give space and time for growth and change. I want you to hear this, friends. God does this for you every single day. Every single day. We're called to do this for others. I love what uh, J.C. Ryle says. He says, um, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to do likewise with his brothers and sisters. And I would just venture to say, don't forget you are one of those weak children, dull pupils, raw soldiers and lame sheep, as am I. And the more you know that, the more you are able to show forbearance to others, okay? So that's forbearance. The second way this word is used in the New Testament is regard to circumstances. And this meaning is often translated uh, long suffering. So the first is forbearance, the second meaning is long suffering. Now this relates to how we deal with suffering, oppression and opposition without giving into despair or retaliating or taking revenge. In Colossians one, Paul says, may you prepare to endure everything with macrothemia, with patience. In our James text, James holds up the prophets and the person of Job as an example of patience under suffering. He, he uses an f- example of a farmer. As a farmer waits for the rains, waiting for the land to yield its crop, we endure sometimes through long and painful seasons of dryness, persevering with patience. Now, again, the ultimate example that scripture upholds is God himself. God is the long sufferer. He is not dispassionately detached from the world, but he suffers and hurts with the world. He suffers with us as he waits the world's redemption. This is supremely demonstrated in the person of Jesus, who, as it says in Isaiah 53, as a sheep before the shear is silent, he does not open his mouth. Jesus Christ perseveres for us through unspeakable suffering. He's misunderstood and rejected by his closest friends. He's arrested and wrongly accused. He's beaten within an inch of his life. He's paraded through the streets. He's mocked, he's nailed, he's hung on a cross, he's completely asphyxiated as he loses his breath and dies. He experiences total separation from God and yet he is oppressed and afflicted and he does not open his mouth. He does it without retaliation or revenge. He does not hurl insults or lash out at his enemies. He does not call down a legion of angels. He does not wield the power that is rightfully his. Instead, he endures suffering. He suffers long that we might be forgiven and loved. And now we can endure our little sufferings and our little inconveniences and pains as Jesus has done for us. This is what Peter is exhorting us to in 1 Peter 2, when he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges 
justly. So with God's spirit in us, we can put up with hardship and suffering, opposition and pain without lashing out, without retaliating, without revenge and without despair as we entrust ourselves to God who promises to make all things right. What does that look like? It means, first of all, when you suffer and you face a position or you face hardship, you're not surprised. So many times Americans are surprised at suffering. What? My life is supposed to be perfect. No, Jesus promised you, you will have tribulation. Don't be surprised. Second, don't retaliate. We do not go the way of violence. We go the way of peace, refusing to lash out and take revenge on those who are hurting us, either with our words or actions. And third, it means we do not quit. We keep going. Even when everything in us wants to give up, we refuse to despair or lose hope. The global church is an amazing example of of long suffering. So much suffering our brothers and sisters endure around the world, and yet so much patient endurance. I want to introduce you to someone. um, This is a pastor in Myanmar named Mai Ki. Mai Ki is a pastor in Myanmar or Burma in a remote region there. She is a friend of Fritz Kling and Kyle Sherman, whose organization works with her and other young leaders um, in Myanmar. And as you have seen, I'm sure, as the country has descended in recent weeks into terrible chaos because of the military coup, um, my key and many of her friends and neighbors have found themselves living in a nightmare. Third, third coup in, in, in a lifetime. And how have they responded? Well, not by fleeing the country, as many elites have done, uh, nor by taking up arms in violence, Instead, they have studied the principles of the American civil rights movement, especially Dr. King's commitment to nonviolence, and they show up every day to peacefully pray and protest despite the oppression, the jailings, and the bodily harm. Mike wrote a email to Fritz this past week when she was able to very briefly get her power back, and this is what she wrote. This is an email from her. This is like living in a nightmare, but we keep showing up, we keep distributing water, We keep on praying. We keep on singing in faith. We shall overcome. Now that's long suffering. And so it does give us a definition of what this really means. It's long suffering is this. It is the ability to endure suffering without despair, retaliation, or revenge, entrusting ultimate judgment to God alone. So this macrothemia, you see, forbearance with others, long suffering and pain. Okay, so go do it. <laughs> now, now, how do we cultivate this, right? Because this is supernatural. No, no human can do this. This only takes the supernatural spirit of God living in us that we cannot naturally respond to difficult people or circumstances according to this way. We need the renovating power and spirit of God inside of us. That's why we're studying the fruits of the spirit. And so how do we do this? Uh, patience, just like all the others, is both gift and task. It's something the spirit gives us, but it's also something we cultivate in cooperation with the spirit. So let's just talk about how we cultivate it, how we cultivate patience. Well, first of all, before we talk about the practice of it, we've got to talk about the posture of patience because we've got to get our hearts right before we talk about what we do. At the root of our impatience, I'm going to say something a bit dramatic and I want you to bear with me. The root of our impatience, I believe, is our anger, distrust, and impatience with God himself our anger, distrust, and impatience with God himself. Look at James' example again. He says, quote, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop 
and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You know, for an ancient Palestinian farmer, there were really only two rains that had to come the whole year. You couldn't plant until the autumn rain because otherwise the ground is too dry. You couldn't harvest until after the spring rain because otherwise your harvest would be anemic. So of course you had no control whatsoever about when the rains would come. And if you got really impatient and you tried to plant before the fall rain, then nothing would come up. And if you got really impatient and tried to harvest before uh, the spring rain, then you'd have a measly harvest. And so the farmer has to accept the fact that he is not in control of the rains and wait, wait. Not taking matters into his own hands, waiting for the rains, waiting for the harvest. Now, James says this is exactly the situation we find ourselves in. When life does not happen the way you want it to, you start to get restless, impatient, frustrated, even angry because the rains aren't coming. The raise and the promotion I thought I was gonna get hasn't come yet. I thought I would be further in my career than I am by now. I thought I'd be further in my life than I am by now. I thought I'd be married by now. Or you are married and you thought your marriage would be different than it actually is. Or you thought your kids would turn out differently than they've turned out. Or the circumstances aren't getting better. The relationship isn't getting better. The cancer isn't getting better. The pandemic isn't getting better. You get what I'm saying? Life is not happening the way you wanted it to. God's timing is not your timing. God's schedule is not your schedule. And so what do you do? Well, kind of depends on your personality. Uh, some of us lash out in anger, either at God or other people. Um, others of us stuff our anger internally and we descend into self-pity and despondency and despair. Um, others of us try to take matters into our own hands and try to manipulate, cut corners, do things questionable to try to actually create the outcomes that we're demanding. But in every case at root, it's our anger and distrust of God. God, you do not know what you're doing. You don't know how to run my life. You don't know how to run the world. Even our impatience with other people is rooted in this because it's the people in your life that mostly get in the way of what you want your life to be. And so you see at the root of our impatience is actually something pretty nefarious, pretty terrible. It's treason. It's treasonous. It's pride. It's a servant trying to take a place of the king. It's, it's the child trying to take the place of the judge. It's us telling God how my life should go and demanding it now at the root of our impatience is a treasonous pride that insists that circumstances, other people, and even God himself must conform to my demand for how my life should go. So what do you do when you realize this? Repent. Repent. Confess to God that we've put ourselves and our demands at the center of our lives and we make a turn. We get a new posture in and through the gospel. If the essence of sin is that the servant has usurped the place of the king, then the essence of the gospel is that the king has taken the place of the servant. And he's done it in love to reconcile and restore the right relationship again so that we see, oh, I'm the child and you're the father. I'm the servant and you're the king and you love me and you want only my good. The gospel proves that God is trustworthy. Despite what you feel, God is trustworthy with the world and with your life. 
And we know this because of Jesus. He is a good God who loves you. He is bringing about his good purposes for our world. His timing is always perfect. His purposes for you are always good. To paraphrase John Newton, everything that is necessary for your life, he sends, and everything, nothing is necessary that he withholds. Everything he sends is necessary. Nothing is necessary that he withholds. We can have absolute confidence in the sovereignty and the promises of God to bring about his good and loving purposes for your life, to ultimately judge and condemn evil and to bring about the new creation. We have the freedom to trust someone greater than ourselves in Christ. His promise is real. He will bring the reins. He will bring them at the right time. And so what undergirds patience is rightly ordered trust. Rightly ordered trust. The gospel restores our relationship with God so that we once again can see ourselves as the servant and God as the king. And we do that when we release control of our lives. You know, the word patient, as in like being a patient in the hospital, is actually comes from the virtue of patience because to be a patient requires you yield control to another person. Rather than just being an actor, you have to come to grips with the fact that you need to be acted upon. And that requires a surrender of control. Can you imagine if you kept grabbing the stethoscope and scalpel of the doctor? I mean, <laughs> I mean, surrendering control to another, putting yourself under the hands of the wise and loving God. How do you do that? Daily surrender. Surrendering your life to the hands of God every single day, reminding yourself of your place as the servant and him as the loving God. Happens through corporate worship, like we're doing today, reminding ourselves that we're not at the center of our world, that the triune God is. Happens through persistent prayer, that you, in prayer, you come to terms with the fact that it's not your job to work things out with other people in the world. It's God's job. I, I was once talking to my dear friend and mentor, Don Coleman, and I was really upset about a situation I was in with, with another person trying to fix and change the situation. And Don looked at me and he said, stop taking the pressure on yourself, start putting the pressure onto God. And you do that in prayer. Put the pressure on him to make it right. Put the pressure on him to fix it. Put the pressure on him to bring redemption and change. It's not your job, let it go. Bring it to God in prayer. So we need to write, you can't, you can't ever be a patient person if you don't get the heart right. Rightly ordered trust, surrendering your life to God, okay? Last thing, we'll talk about the practice now. Okay, yeah, real practical here. How do you become a more patient person? Patience, like all the other virtues, is a good moral habit. How do you practice it? Well, let me just give you a three-step plan, friends, okay? First of all, recognize. Recognize when you get impatient. Let me give you some signs. You have physical signs. They may include shallow, fast breathing, muscle tension, hand clenching. You might find yourself shuffling your feet. There might be changes in your mood and thoughts. You might become irritable angry, anxiety, or nervousness, right? Notice these things in yourself without judgment. Just notice them, be aware of them, and note, if you can, the occasion of these physiological responses. So note the time and occasion of them. So maybe it's when you're put on hold for a long time, or maybe it's getting stuck in a long line, or struggling to figure out a computer problem, or facing an extended wait at the doctor's office, or having to listen to someone take what seems to be an interminably long time to explain something simple. Or maybe it's when your child says your name in a certain way, or yells in a certain, if you notice them in the moment, you might stop, take some deep breaths, 
perhaps step out of the room, step away from the computer. If you're able to give space and time for yourself as God does for you to open up the possibility for a different outcome, right? So that's the first thing you do, you recognize it. Second, you reflect on it. As you can, try to reflect on the times once you've noted them when your impatience is triggered. And we all tend to think that what causes our impatience is external. It's that annoying person. That's what makes me impatient. It's that frustrating circumstances. That's what's making me impatient. But in reality, friends, it's never external things that make you impatient. It's you that makes you impatient. It's your own heart and your own mind and your own brain that's making you impatient. And so if you have taken the step to recognize when you tend to have these emotional and physical reactions, then you can begin to reflect on what is the thought pattern behind your physiology, right? So what's the thought pattern behind your unrealistic, prideful, and self-pitying thought patterns that are triggering your emotional and physical reactions? Are you following me? Are y'all following me? So, so like I did some journaling about my own reactions this week and I'll read you my journal here, okay? Deep down, I believe there should be no lines in the world, no traffic in the roads. I should never have to wait. My children should always be compliant should never have any problems with my physical body. All technology should work perfectly. Fellow human beings should never be annoying. And no one ahead of me in line should ever make small talk with the cashier. <laughs> you see, I'm not actually literally thinking these things, but these are the lies that lie beneath the surface of my physiological and emotional reactions in my everyday life. So behind all of our behavior is false beliefs about the way my life should go and someone or something is standing in the way of it. So trying to reflect on what is behind your impatience, especially the way that you try to seize control of your life and usurp God's place, actually begins to get to the root. So once you can recognize and then reflect, you can then begin to replace. You can begin to say, what is the truth that I am forgetting and missing and not living into? The truth about God, about other people, about me. And where do you get that truth from? The gospel, God's word, right? So I say to myself, I'm forgetting Aren't you forgetting, soul, that final judgment lies in God's hands alone? It's not your job to judge. Aren't you forgetting that you have a good father who loves you and provides for your needs? You don't have to anxiously provide for yourself. Aren't you forgetting that God's timing is always better timing than yours and that his purposes are always good? Aren't you forgetting that you are not the judge, you're the servant. You're not the king, you're the child. Your life is in the hands of a good father. You are not alone, you're not an orphan. You can entrust your life and your circumstances to someone who is bigger and stronger and wiser and more powerful than you, who is holding your life. Replace the false beliefs that are driving your impatient reactions with the truth of who you are and who you belong to. This takes a lot of practice. Sometimes you need the help of another person, a therapist or a counselor or a good friend or community, but it takes a lot of work to put this into practice. And eventually through the power of the spirit of God in you who crucifies the flesh and lets you live according to the spirit, you actually become a more patient person. So let me close. What is patience? Patience is at least these two things. It is forbearance it is long-suffering. It is the ability to put up the weaknesses of others without anger or irritation, delaying judgment to give grace. And it is long-suffering. It is the ability to endure suffering without despair, 
retaliation or revenge. Both are rooted in a deep, profound trust in the goodness of God, surrendering our life to his hands, being deeply aware of his infinite patience with us and our weakness every single day. Let me close with this wonderful quote. Nothing is ever wasted in the kingdom of God. Not one tear, not all our pain, not the unanswered question or the seemingly unanswered prayers. Nothing will be wasted as we surrender our lives to God. And if we are willing to be patient until the grace of God is made manifest, whether it takes nine years or 90, it will always be worth the wait. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. I just invite you to speak to God now, whatever the spirit has stirred in your heart. Maybe you would name some particular um, area in your life right now where you are experiencing a great struggle with patience, whether it's a person, a child, a spouse, a colleague, situation, a circumstance, somewhere where you are, your patience or your perseverance or your resilience is just wearing down. Would you freshly surrender yourself to the God who loves you and ask him for help? Let's just respond with just singing to God for a moment here that we surrender ourselves to him, that we surrender to him. We sing just simple, the simple phrase, I surrender all, all to Jesus. I surrender all. Let's just surrender to him now. Jesus, we thank you that we can resign our role as judge and ruler and king and sovereign over our lives, that we can rest in the truth that you alone are the judge and the king. So we surrender our lives freshly to you. We take that renewed posture of the little children trusting the Father, and we ask that you would renew in us the spirit of God, that we might become more like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's just stand and uh, sing our, our final hymn together.